0: Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of Leaders of the American Civil War. In this episode, we conclude our discussion of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. But before I begin, I want to dedicate this episode to my father, Alan Jones. Dad passed away on May the 12th of this year after a long illness, and he is greatly missed by all his family and friends. My father was an avid student of American history. He loved sharing stories of folklore and history with us, his three children. There's no question Dad passed his passion for history along to me and my two siblings. You'll always be with us, Dad. In episode 31, we discussed the battles of Second Manassas and Chantilly. Lee ordered Stonewall Jackson to get around and behind Union General John Pope's Army of Virginia and cut their supply line. Then Jackson drew Pope into a trap that was closed shut when Lee and Longstreet arrived and routed Pope's army from the field. Lee and Jackson were lauded throughout the South as heroes and legend. The stories of Jackson's march around Pope had indeed become legendary in the South. Everywhere he went, people wanted to see and touch him. Men wanted to shake his hand. Children pressed as close as they dared when he passed. According to S.C. Gwynn, at Martinsburg, Virginia, he rode down the town's main street to tumultuous cheers, and women clustered around him and actually managed to cut off buttons from his coat. Some of them screamed for locks of his hair to which he blushed Gen- the blushing general replied quote, "Ladies really this is the first time I have ever been surrounded by the enemy" end quote. Then he sought refuge in a hotel citizens surrounded the place rattling the doors and windows even at his poor even as his poor horse little sorrel was being stripped of his hair by souvenir hunters Jackson who disliked such adulation Escaped only by setting up a secret headquarters outside of town. Then, only two days after the Battle of Chantilly on September the 3rd, Lee stepped off his army for the first of two invasions on United States soil. This invasion would be known as the Maryland Campaign and would culminate in the Battle of Antietam. Now, Lee's army had been very successful in the field and had captured mountains of Union supplies as they won key victories. However, this success did not translate into fervor on the part of the southern states to support their army with supplies and commissary resources. According to historian James Robertson, Jr., ammunition ammunition reserves were low. The commissary department was undependable at best. Wagons were few and rickety. Soldiers resembled scarecrows. Almost half of the men were without shoes, yet morale seemed boundless. Now, John Pope's Union Army, having been thoroughly whipped at Second Manassas, made their way back to the defenses of Washington to lick their wounds and regroup. General Pope was sacked, and George B. McClellan was once again placed at the head of the Union Armies in the East. We won't spend much time in this episode on the Maryland campaign and the Antietam battle. This is because I plan to to cover these events in detail in future episodes. A brief look into this campaign does, however, allow us to revisit a key trait of Jackson's leadership. Jackson was constantly at odds with his subordinate commanders and seemingly forever placing them under arrest for failing to follow orders. The issue of greatest annoyance to Jackson again was straggling. Morale was high, but straggling was rampant because men had to forage for their own food and supplies. On the road to Maryland, Jackson placed one of his division commanders, A.P. Hill, under arrest for this very reason. Ironically, it was during this campaign that A.P. Hill would come to the rescue of the Army of Northern Virginia. At Antietam, just as they were about to be pushed into the Potomac River by McClellan's Federals, A.P. Hill's division raced up from Harper's Ferry and saved the day for the rebels. The next big battle was Fredericksburg. It was the last major battle of 1862, which occurred from December 11th to December 15th, and it was another monumental victory for Lee and the rebels. However, in Jackson's southern sector of the battlefield, things nearly went sideways for the Confederates. George Gordon Meade's Union Division exploited a large gap in A.P. Hill's section of Jackson's line and routed Hill's division. Had Meade received the support he requested from his fellow Union commanders, Fredericksburg might have been a very, had a very different outcome than the Southern victory known to history. However, Meade's breakthrough was not followed up, and Jackson's lines were restored with the help of desperate counterattacks by Jubal Early and William Tolliver. After some intense bloody combat, Jackson's lines stabilized. Then the main action moved from his sector to Longstreet's sector in the north at Mary's Heights. Union Army Commander uh, General Ambrose Burnside ordered many fruitless attacks against well-entrenched and well-defended heights of the city, with predictable and tragic results for the Federals. This takes us up to Jackson's final engagement, the Battle of Chancellorsville. General Joseph Hooker had taken command of the Union Army following Burnside's spectacular failures at Fredericksburg and the infamous mud march that followed soon after. Fighting Joe, as he was known, was exactly what the Union Army needed. He spent the early spring months of 1863 rebuilding the Army of the Potomac, improving their their morale. He reorganized the Army, improved the commissary and supply situation, and improved camp sanitation, among other great reforms, and he had a good plan to destroy Lee's army of Northern Virginia. Now, Lee's army was still stationed in the vicinity of Fredericksburg by late April of 1863, and he had sent Longstreet and two of his divisions off to southeastern Louisiana, sorry, Virginia, to forage for food and supplies. Hooker knew this, and he knew Lee was vulnerable. Hooker's plan was to trap Lee in a double envelopment. So on April 27th, Hooker put his plan into action with great secrecy. While Jackson and his wife Anna were listening to Reverend Lacey preach at a church in Hamilton's Crossing, Hooker launched his plan. He sent three of his army corps to march 30 miles around the rebel uh, army's left flank above Fredericksburg, crossing the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers. The maneuver was perfectly executed, and it completely fooled Lee. By April 30th, the Union flanking columns, one of which was the 11th Corps commanded by Oliver Otis Howard, were all camped in the vicinity of a little crossroads called Chancellorsville. While this was happening, Hooker also placed a a large Union force to face off with Lee's front and right at Fredericksburg. Lee's entire rebel army was now caught in a vice and with some of his best fighting men off scavenging for food in the east. Recognizing his desperate situation, Lee began to shift his divisions around to confront the danger he now faced on his left and right flanks. He moved Jackson's divisions to the west in the area of Chancellorsville and left Jubal Early in Fredericksburg to defend the heights with only about 12,000 men. This was the moment of truth for both armies. Had Hooker's Union Army attacked when they had Lee securely in a vice, they might have completely destroyed the rebel army. Instead, they waited and they indulged in self-congratulation for their brilliant and daring maneuvers to put him in this position. But this was a mistake. Jackson's men prepared and braced themselves for a Union attack, but it never came. So then on May 1st, Jackson decided rather than wait for a Union attack, he would a stage an attack of his own. Just like he had done in the Valley, he attacked early, without his entire force, in order to ch- uh, catch the enemy off guard. This shocked the Union commander when, he, when his rapidly moving columns advanced into the lower two prongs of Hooker's attacking force. Jackson not only had the element of surprise, but he deprived the federal columns of their ability to join forces. Now Hooker had no choice but to order a withdrawal into the wilderness thickets, and, most crucially, he had lost the initiative to Lee. Hooker still had a massive troop advantage, but now he was on the back foot. So while Union General Fighting Joe Hooker was attending to his new troop di- dispositions from the Chancellor House that evening, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were sitting on a log near the intersection of the Orange Plank and Catherine Furnace Roads, talking. Their conference lasted several hours and endures in legend as likely the most famous conference of the Civil War. According to author, uh, author Gwyn. Staff officers and various generals came and went. Gunshots from the front lines sputtered and finally died out. Darkness came. Later on, when those observers understood the full historic significance of this conversation, they would strain to remember something, anything, about what they had heard or seen. Now, during this conference, Jackson said he believed Hooker would withdraw from Chancellorsville by morning. But Lee knew better. As he saw it, Hooker's retreat meant that he wanted to fight a defensive battle. Instead of withdrawing, Hooker was digging in and daring Lee to attack. As it turned out, Lee was right, and he intended to to oblige his enemy. There was no way for Lee to attack frontly because Hooker's forces were well too entrenched with their left flank covered by the Rappahannock River. So Lee began to consider an attack on the Union right or rear, when he found out that Jeb Stuart's cavalry had just discovered something extraordinary. The federal right was completely uncovered and up in the air. Union cavalry was busy with a raid that turned out to be a huge failure, and the absence of cavalry for the Union meant that there was no screen to cover their flanks and no way to determine the rebel army's dispositions. So as we discussed in episode two... Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Union Corps was isolated on the far right flank of the Union position, and he was virtually blind with no cavalry eyes or ears to look out for the enemy. Now, back to the Lee Jackson Conference. Lee knew Howard's force, his Union force, was isolated and uncovered on the Union right, but he needed advice on the local terrain to plan the attack. So Jackson uh, summoned Reverend Lacey, or Tucker Lacey, whose family owned land in the area. This is the same Lacey with whom Anna and Thomas Jackson had worshipped on the 27th. Lacey explained that a column uh, marching a loop to the south and to the west could trace a long arc from Catherine Furnace that would reach the orange turnpike at Wilderness Tavern, about five miles west of Chancellorsville. This would place the rebels right on top of the uncovered Union right flank. So Lee made, it des- made his decision. He would send Jackson on a march around the Union right. He would leave the details of the flanking movement and the subsequent attack uh, to follow up to Jackson. Jeb Stuart and his cavalry would screen his movements, and so Lee issued marching orders the very next day. Soon, Jed Hotchkiss and Tucker Lacey were working with a local proprietor to map out Jackson's route around the Union flank. When they presented their findings to Lee and Jackson, Hotchkiss recalled that Lee turned to Jackson. General Jackson, what do you propose to do? Lee asked. Go around here, Jackson replied, pointing to the suggested map on the route. What do you propose to make this movement with? Lee asked. With my whole command, Jackson answered. After making a few notes, Lee uh, said, Well, go ahead. And that was all there was to it. Then Jackson saluted and said, My troops will move at once, sir. At about 7 a.m. on the morning of May 2nd, Jackson's corps began to cross the Plank Road on their way to Catherine Furnace and beyond. General Lee sat on a horse by the side of the road, watching. When Jackson rode up, the two men talked briefly. Whatever they said is lost to history. Then Jackson pointed toward the enemy lines and rode on. With him went 29,000 men and 108 guns. Riding on his flank were three and a half regiments of Jeb Stuart's cavalry, again from Gwen. The column uh, wound forward along narrow paths that had been cut through the dense woods, an enormous silent body of men making their way west. Jackson, riding at the head of the column, stopped to pick up his guide, Charles Welford. When he galloped past his men, he did so with his cap held high, while his men all raised theirs in silent tribute. It was not an easy march. Temperatures rose, and the length and narrowness of the column meant that every piece of uneven terrain and every mud hole would cause it to string out, leading an endless halting and starting, halting and starting. The last of Jackson's troops, under A.P. Hill, did not leave until eleven o'clock. Still, they pressed forward with minimal straggling. Jackson had made sure of that by placing his regimental commanders in the rear. My father and I made this journey at Chancellorsville together many years ago. I remember being awed by the prospect of 30,000 men in a column covering so much ground so fast and so quietly as to catch the Union Army completely off guard. The fact is that Union commanders had been warned by their scouts of this massive truth movement, and some sharp skirmishing had occurred along the way. However, Hooker and his corps commanders didn't take the movement seriously, and without cavalry support, they could not have appreciated the big picture of what was happening. As an aside, it would be after this coming disaster that Hooker would recognize his cavalry corps, reorganize his cavalry corps sacking several ineffectual generals and promoting a few promising officers to Brigadier General. One of those would be George Armstrong Custer. Now, Hooker was indeed concerned with Howard's mostly German-speaking 11th Corps out there on the far left-right flank, but he could only give them moral support and a little guidance. Hooker was actually under the illusion that Lee was retreating and therefore continued to leave Howard's corps isolated and alone. Meanwhile, back to Jackson on his 30-mile trek to the west. He had with him 20 brigadiers and colonels that day who were VMI graduates. Jackson was pleased with this and said to Colonel Mumford, who had been one of his favorite cadets, Colonel, The Institute will be heard from today. At about 2.30 p.m., the head of Jackson's column came to a halt at the Orange Plank Road, three miles west of Chancellorsville. Observing the Union line in front, Jackson decided to shift his various uh, divisions around to the east and to the north in order to achieve a a perpendicular flanking attack. Over the next two hours, Jackson labored with his generals to place 21,000 infantry and eight pieces of artillery into position. This would be his attacking force. The rest would follow behind in reserve. About half a mile ahead of him, Howard's Union force went about their business, suspecting nothing. When Jackson had finished, his battle line was about two miles long, aimed directly at a Union Army Corps, that was in most places only a few men deep, facing away from them to the south. According to Fitzhugh Lee, below and but a few hundred yards distant ran their lines of battle, with a betis in front and long lines of stacked arms in the rear. Cannon in position were visible, and the soldiers were in groups, chatting, smoking, and playing cards, while the ones in the rear were driving up and butchering beavers from s.e. Gwyn a bugle rang out through the woods followed by responses from bugles on the left and the right and suddenly the woods were alive with fast-moving confederates As they they quick-stepped forward through the tangled undergrowth, they didn't seem to dampen their enthusiasm. The wild, eerie corkscrew sound of the rebel yell swept through the ranks. In minutes, they were in range of the Union lines. Though the rough terrain broke up Jackson's neat battle lines, the men did not stop to reform, but pushed forward singly and in groups. Jackson rode close behind his men, shouting, "'Press forward! Press forward!' The speed and direction of the Confederate attack took Howard's Eleventh Corps completely by surprise. There was little they could do about it except to drop what they had and run for their lives. There was an effort made here and there by Union cavalry to form and make some kind of a fight, but the shock of the uh, assault was too much for them. Quote, the surprise was complete, wrote Confederate artillery officer uh, David Gregg McIntosh. The camp was in wild confusion. Men lost their heads in terror. The road and the woods on both sides were filled with men, horses, and cattle in one mad flight. The rebel yell added terror to the situation. Quote. The victory was fast and complete. In an hour and a half, Jackson had shattered the 11th Corps and driven forward a full mile and a quarter to a point less than two miles from Hooker's headquarters. The 11th Corps had suffered 2,400 casualties out of 11,000 men, including 1,000 captured. Jackson only lost 800 men. Of course, this was not sufficient for the ever-aggressive Jackson. Even though he had just executed the most stunning surprise attack of the war, he wanted more. At once, he began making plans to cut off Hooker's force from crossing back over the Rappahannock River to safety so he went out on a personal reconnaissance to scout the battlefield from far forward or eastward as possible. This exasperated his staff, who feared for his safety, but he persisted. With him were eight other riders, including his signal officer, his aide-de-camp, and several couriers. Following them eastward was another mounted group of nine riders with A.P. Hill. In all, nineteen riders went forward into the moonlit darkness. Somehow, no one bothered to inform the Confederate commanders in the area that Jackson and Hill were out on a uh, personal reconnaissance. At about 9 p.m., Jackson and his entourage turned back toward their own lines when a single shot rang out from a Confederate skirmisher that resulted in skirmishers firing from both sides. The Confederate infantry had no idea that uh, there were Confederate horsemen in front of them, least of all A.P. Hill and Stonewall Jackson. The 18th North Carolina opened fire and raked both parties, killing men and horses in the melee. A.P. Hill was unharmed, but Jackson was struck by three rounds, one round piercing his right hand and two more rounds struck his left arm, shattering the bone just above the left shoulder. Jackson fell to the ground and was immediately tended to by Hill and his own staff. The problem now for Jackson was to get him to safety in the middle of what was turning out to be an intense nighttime firefight. He was carried away in a litter and twice dropped directly on his shattered arm. Finally, he was carried behind Confederate lines to Wilderness Tavern, and Dr. McGuire was able to stop the bleeding and then, unfortunately, had to amputate Jackson's left arm. General Lee was worried that Jackson might be captured, so he ordered uh, his wounded general transported to a private home near uh, Guinea Station, a railroad depot south of uh, Fredericksburg. By now, everyone in the Army of Northern Virginia and the surrounding areas knew what had happened to Jackson. While Jackson was convalescing, Hooker's Union Army was retreating and giving up high ground to the rebels. Porter Alexander used this high ground that they had just given him to pound the Federals as they staged a uh, fighting retreat to U.S. Ford on the Rappahannock. On May 5th, Hooker ordered the Union Army to withdraw to the north side of the Rappahannock. The Battle of Chancellorsville was over. And from Jackson's stunning flank attack to the withdrawal of the immense Union Army under cover of darkness, this battle is considered Robert E. Lee's greatest victory. There were about 30,000 casualties in the three days of fighting, 17,000 Union and 13,000 Confederate. Fifty miles away in Washington, Lincoln's reaction to Hooker's defeat was, My God, my God, what will the country say? Meanwhile, Jackson told Reverend Lacey, Jackson has lost his left arm, but me my right arm. Jackson was moved to a large house called Fairfield to continue convalescing. He had to endure a very bumpy 27-mile ride through the Virginia Outback to get there. His condition improved for two days, but suddenly took a turn for the worse on May 7th. He was having difficulty breathing, likely due to pneumonia. Anna finally arrived at Fairfield House that day to see him after a long train ride that was made more difficult by the ineffectual Union cavalry raid we discussed earlier. Only eight days earlier, Anna had seen a man, in her words, in the full flush of vigorous manhood, but now she saw a flushed, gaunt figure in a morphine stupor with sunken eyes and a mutilated body. His face bore, quote, angry scars, end quote, from hitting tree branches uh, after little sorrel had bolted. He had trouble breathing. He was thrilled to see Anna, but he was hallucinating and imagining himself still in battle. He said things like, Tell Major Hawks to send forward provisions to the men, and order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. After two more days, he was not getting better. Sunday morning, May 10th, doctors McGuire and Morrison examined him and agreed that he did not have long to live, and they told Anna, She went into the sick room to tell Jackson the news. "'Do you know that doctors say you must soon be in heaven?' she asked. Then she made similar religious statements, to which Jackson's response was, "'I prefer it,' he said in a weak voice, and then louder, "'I prefer it.'" "'Well, before this day closes, you will be with the blessed Savior in glory.'" Shortly after 3.15 p.m., he awoke in the delirium, saying, A.P. Hill, to prepare, prepare for action, pass the infantry to the front, front rapidly, tell Major Hawks. Then he went abruptly silent. Soon he said, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Then, without pain or struggle, McGuire wrote, His spirit passed from the earth to the God who gave it. The news of Jackson's passing spread quickly, even before Lee could make an official announcement to the troops. Just as the Confederacy was celebrating its greatest victory, indeed its high-water mark, the great warrior Jackson was gone. Southerners mourned in unison, and newspapers articulated their grief from Texas to Florida and from Virginia to Louisiana. Northern feelings about Jackson were perhaps best summarized by John W. Forney, a prominent editor of the Washington Chronicle. Stonewall Jackson was a great general, a brave soldier, a noble Christian, and a pure man. May God throw these great virtues against the sin of the secessionist and advocate of the great national crime. Jackson's funeral was held at VMI in Lexington, Virginia, and his pallbearers included Richard S. Ewell, George E. Pickett, Richard B. Garnett, George H. Stewart, John H. Winder, Montgomery D. Corse, James L. Kemper, and Rear Admiral French Forrest, and Jackson's riderless horse, not Little Sorrel, with boots reversed in the stirrups, was tended to by his loyal servant and an enslaved man named Jim Lewis. Jackson was buried in the Lexington graveyard next to his and Anna's daughter, Mary Graham, and close to his first wife, Elfie, Ellie, and their uh, stillborn son. Jed Hotchkiss said that nearly all regarded Jackson's death as the beginning of the end, and the feeling was re- and that feeling was reinforced two months later by the disastrous Confederate loss at Gettysburg. Did you enjoy my podcast? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, please send any comments or questions you have to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 33, in which we will discuss or begin our discussion of General Ulysses S. Grant.